0: So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25 is where we are picking up this pretty big narrative section of the book of Acts. If you remember from last week, Paul is left in a, as a ward of the Roman state in Caesarea, so whether he's probably not in a jail cell in a dungeon but he is chained. He does have chains on him. He is, uh, you know, underneath observation every single day. He has some liberty for his friends to come in and interact with him and provide for him. We'll see next week. Luke is here with Paul. You know, Luke's not, Luke wasn't arrested. Uh, there, there are other brothers that are there in Caesarea with Paul that are not Uh under arrest, but they're there fellowshipping with Paul, meeting Paul's needs. Gospel is being shared and one-on-one opportunities. But this is, we left Paul last week, so as Felix is having his issues just in his own life as a human being, He is holding on to Paul and keeping Paul in confinement because one, he wants money from Paul, and two, if he releases Paul, that's going to have political implications for Felix and his relationship with the Jews, and Felix's job is to keep peace in the name of Caesar in Israel. So if he releases Paul, that's not going to bring about peace, so he's holding on to Paul in confinement. So what happens to Felix And Felix ends up being a poor ruler in regards to the Jewish rebellion against the authority of Rome at this time, it finds its firm foundation where there's no turning back in regards to the Jews rebelling against Rome. This is going to lead to Rome sending an army in in the next you know decade from this point, where they will destroy Jerusalem, they will destroy the temple, and they will decimate the Jewish population. So that is in Israel's future from this point. But Felix, as a bad ruler, he's been recalled to Rome. Now Felix, I said last week, he has a... His position is based upon his brother's relationship with Nero. I read in a commentary this week, so even that relationship didn't last last that long. So Felix's brother, Pallas, Pallas, however it is pronounced, was a super rich, free slave. So he was a slave, was able to uh, develop a fortune in his in his business pursuits as a freedman. Clearly, there's going to be a lot of corruption involved in that, his relationship with Nero. But because Nero didn't like the palace was holding on to his cash, Nero poisoned him. So even that friendship didn't last too long. And we're going to, I'm bringing this up to say that as we sit in a lot of the relationships this morning in the political... um, machine of Rome and Israel of its day. It is absolutely a tabloid soap opera mess. So even the friendships that are there, they're, they're very short-lived. So Paul is being held as, uh, by Felix, as Felix is called away. Now Portius Festus steps in as you know, the Roman governor over this area. And again, I mentioned last week, this is the same position that Pilate held a couple of decades earlier. So let's pick this up. So remember, Paul has been waiting on Jesus to send him to Rome because that was what Jesus told him. He was going to be a witness for the Lord in Rome, we were told back in chapter 23, as Jesus revealed himself and and comforted Paul as he was being arrested. Now chapter 25, so it says, now when Festus had come to the province, so he's here, he shows up in Caesarea, shows up in, in this new position. After three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, so he is hot on the task of what he has been sent there to do. And this is uh, Caesarea again. This is uh, the political uh, power city of Rome over the area. And Jerusalem, clearly the the power city for the Jews. So he's going there to introduce himself and to get things squared away, whatever his assignment may be. Verse 2, And the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him of Paul. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority, literally ability, among you to go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. So, Sit in, the, again, sit, sit in the snapshot for the Jewish re- leadership. I, I brought up last week just how uh, the level of importance that Paul had in his influence and what a threat that the Jewish leadership felt that he was for the high priest himself to go to Caesarea to bring these charges, to bring about ultimately Paul's death, right? That was two years before. And now when the new Roman leadership shows up as he is coming and having these meetings, in the midst of these meetings, who's still on the mind of the Jewish leadership? They haven't forgotten about Paul at all. Paul's locked away in Caesarea his influence has to be drastically reduced in the community. However, maybe it's not. Maybe the conversation of Paul is continuing to cycle through the community, and he's being a constant problem to the Jewish leadership. So when the new guy shows up, when Festus shows up, as they're trying to position with one another, finding out what they can get, to, right, this give and take political relationship between these different groups, hey, Festus, Felix was holding on to a guy named Paul. Would you bring Paul here to Jerusalem and be again behind the scenes? Remember those guys, those forty plus guys that created the put themselves under a curse that they wouldn't eat or drink unless until they killed Paul? Now, well, they haven't been not eating and drinking for two years, but again, that's that same heart. And this is, this is what blind religion does. They, they believe that they're fighting for God, and they're truly fighting against God. So, hey, bring this guy up, really behind the scenes. They're going to lay an ambush and kill him along the way. They're still seeking their kind of justice. Festus is not going for it. Hey, this guy's been arrested for a reason. I don't know anything about this. I'm new here. You come down to Caesarea when, when I go, and uh, we'll allow you to present your case. We'll allow Paul to defend himself, and we'll see if he gets killed or set free. So verse 6, when he had remained among them more than 10 days, so doing his business there in Jerusalem, he goes down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, we'll come back to that, He commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints, these weighty accusations against Paul, which they couldn't prove, they couldn't couldn't demonstrate the truth of any of the accusations that they were saying, while he answered for himself. So Paul's statement is, neither against the law of the Jews. Think about this statement. Paul is in his integrity saying, I have not broken the law of the Jews, I have not broken the law of the temple, nor have I broken Caesar's laws. Uh, So his direct statement is, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the law of the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended, literally have I sinned in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, remember all the politics that are going on, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and be judged before me according to these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, no injury. As you very well know, you recognize that I have done nothing. Nothing for if i have offended if i've done wrong if i'm a wrongdoer or have committed anything deserving corresponding to death i don't refuse i don't reject to dying but if there is nothing in these things in which these men accuse me uh, no one can deliver me to them i appeal to caesar literally i call upon Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, so not the Jewish council, but his own counselors, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. I told you I was going to come back. So, I mean, the, the narrative is pretty easy to follow, but this whole idea of a judgment seat. So, when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate in the Praetorium, as, as, as Pilate was judging. Uh, the accusations that the Jews were bringing against Jesus, again, I mentioned multiple times that there's a lot of parallels between what is going on in Paul to what occurred to Jesus in, in the road to Jerusalem and the trials and so forth. So this, this judgment seat you see in, in Roman and Greek communities, this was the position of the judge of the community. This was the position of in their games uh, in regards to the rewards that were given at games. So that's part of the imagery that we receive But I'm bringing this up to say that this imagery of festus as a judge to paul it's the same imagery that the word of god gives to us in regards to our judgment by jesus paul mentioned last week that there is a future resurrection of both the just and the unjust as we went through the book of revelation we talked about this specifically at the great white throne judgment that's mentioned in revelation that those souls are the unjust who appear before Christ on this great white throne that he is seated, and their judgment, they are judged according to their works. And in that, it says that they are cast into the lake of fire, and that's identified as the second death. So that's the judgment of the unjust. So both in Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are told that as believers We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the distinction is there is a judgment of the just. Our justness, our righteousness, comes from Christ and Christ alone. But it still says that we are going to appear before Christ individually, and the life that you live in Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus, is going to be judged. Whether the works that you did were good, whether the works that you did were bad, we are told that the bad things are going to burn away. We told that what, is, what remains will be those precious things that were done through the Lord, by the Lord, uh, for the Lord in our lives, and that there will be reward in heaven. So a lot of people have this mentality, well, I'll just be thankful to be there and patting off the fire as I stand in his presence. But there's this reality. There, there ought to be a, an understanding and a desire, just like we were just singing, the Lord, I love you. And I want my life in private and in public to reflect that love for you. Whatever it is that you've called me to, created me for, appointed me to, whether it's small, whether it's great, doesn't matter what it is, Lord. Let your will be done. But let me do it, and we're going to talk about works a little bit later on, but let me do it according to your power and for your will and for your glory alone. My name doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything to anybody except those who has a, have a relationship and those who love me and those kinds of things. My name is not eternal. The name of Jesus eternal. is eternal. I'm told, in fact, I'm getting a new name by Jesus just like you're getting a new name by Jesus. I won't be known for all eternity as Blake, as far as I know. I'm going to have a new name. You're going to have a new name recreated in him. Let everything be done for his glory. So this whole idea of the judgment seat that Festus is sitting on as he judges Paul, that imagery is given to us to, as believers in Jesus, to understand, child of God, you have a judgment day coming. You will be forever welcomed into his kingdom. You will forever abide in his kingdom. But what does he tell you to do if you want to be great in his kingdom? Become the servant of all. Jesus, the almighty God, the ruler of the heavens and the earth, humbled himself to become like us, to serve every single human being. He came to save Everyone, Because the whole world is under the condemnation of sin and is ruled by sin and death. Yes? Jesus came to save us, to serve all. So to be like Jesus, again, he's given us this example. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? That is a good desire. Jesus never rebukes the disciples for seeking to be great. He told them how to do it. You love me. You abide in me you abide in my word, you follow me, you serve me. I will perform my will in your life. And to be seated at my right hand or my left hand, Jesus says, that's not for me to give. It's the Father's will in heaven. So whatever your future appointment is, may it be fulfilled in your life in Jesus Christ. Whatever he calls you to do, do it with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, loving the Lord and loving people, amen? That's, a, that's, a, that's why we're here. That's why we're following him. We all have a future judgment, and don't let that, if, uh, if you're playing with sin, let that be a fearful thing then. But if you're following the Lord, if you're processing through life the struggles, the trials, whatever those things may be, you have a great hope and confidence in him that he is working in you and through you. So let that be an encouragement. As all these plots are going on behind the scenes and Paul's life to kill him, one of the spiritual realities is that there are plots going on in our lives. The devil is seeking not to just rule you, but to keep you separate from God, to keep you and all of humanity abiding in death. Ultimately, the plots of Satan behind the scenes are seeking after your death, just like the plots of the Jews here are seeking after the death of Paul, just like the plots earlier on in the Gospels were seeking after the death of Jesus of Nazareth because they were rejecting him. Paul, in this legal position that, again, he is subject to the laws of the land, he is saying that he is standing before Caesar. Caesar's courts have authority in the the culture that Paul is abiding in, and he's saying, I stand before Caesar's courts, before his authority— These individuals, the the Jews, they are attempting to usurp that authority. I, I call upon Caesar. And I bring this up because when Stephen is being stoned, we are told that he is calling upon God and praying for Jesus to receive his spirit as he is dying. As we sit with Paul's testimony and, and when Jesus manifests himself to him, we're going to sit in that third telling of it this morning. The other two tellings of it are the other two times where it is mentioned that Paul himself needs to call upon Jesus as he is being baptized. And he is, as he is being sent by Jesus to go and proclaim the gospel and be a witness for Jesus, he is to encourage everyone to call upon the name of Jesus. So even as Paul is saying, I appeal to, I am calling upon the name of Caesar, it's because Caesar is the individual of authority um, on the human plane in regards to what Paul is being accused of and where his freedom or execution is eventually going to come from. But ultimately, we in in everything, whether we are all subject to the laws of the culture in which we live, But if we're ever being accused, whether it's true, whether it's false, we are calling upon ultimately the authority of Jesus in our lives at all times. Verse 13, after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. All right, we're going to pause here and get into the soap opera and just help um, get the players in, in in our minds here. So Festus is the new Roman governor of this area. King Agrippa, this is Agrippa II. He is the king of specific areas. The areas are appointed to him by Rome, and they grow over time, and Bernice is his sister. So let's help kind of get the biblical narrative under our belt. So when you start in the Gospels, and you have the Herod, Herod the Great, at the time of, that Jesus is born, Herod the Great is the one who sought to what? The king of the Jews is born, and in his keeping power, in all of his personal paranoia, this man questioned the scribes of the day to find out at what time this child, this king of the Jews, would have been born, where he would have been born, and he sent his soldiers to murder every child in this community in Bethlehem from two years old and younger. This is is Herod the Great. Herod the Great had a few kids, different wives. Through these children, so one of the uh, sons that he had was Aristobulus. So Aristobulus and... His brother from the same mom, Herod, killed Aristobulus and his brother and his mom because he felt threatened by whatever coup that he thought that they were trying to usurp his authority. Before Aristobulus was killed, one of his sons is Agrippa I, all right? So that's grandson of Herod the Great. Now go back up to Herod the Great's children. So Herod also had a son that we see in the rest of the Gospels. So after Herod dies in the early chapters of the Gospels, his son, Herod Antipas, is the one who takes on that role. So Herod Antipas is the one who beheads John the Baptist. Herod Antipas is the Herod that uh, that Pilate sends Jesus to during his trials, and we're told that Pilate and Herod Antipas form a friendship from that day on during Jesus' trial. Herod Antipas is the one who married Herodias, and this is why John the Baptist had his head cut off, because John the Baptist was publicly saying that the woman that you're married to is illegal. Well, here's the illegality of it. One, Herod Antipas is the uncle of Herodias. Herodias was married to Antipas' brother Philip and had a daughter, so Philip and Herodias had a daughter, Salome. You got all this? i tell you, it's a soap opera. Herodias divorces Philip, marries Antipas, So this is what John is saying, that that relationship that you have is against God on so many different levels. The daughter of Herodias and Philip is Salome. She is the young woman who dances before Antipas in such a way that he promises to give her half the kingdom. And Herodias convinces Salome to ask for John the Baptist's head. So that's the death of John the Baptist. So how are the Herods sounded? Pretty messed up, huh? So now you get down to Agrippa the First. And we talked about um, Drusilla last week. She's the youngest sister of Agrippa the First. Let's see, who else? And then, no. See, I'm already... (laughs) there's, there's, There's so many lines here. You seriously have to have a chart of all this stuff. So you got Herod the Great's the one that murders all the babies. Herod Antipas is the one who murders John the Baptist and uh, essentially sends Jesus to his death also. Agrippa the First is the one earlier on in Acts chapter 12 that when he arrests James, the brother of John, and executes James and then arrests Peter and you have that whole scene of Peter escaping from jail through Jesus sending an angel for that freedom. So that's a grip of the first. And then again, you have his death being eaten by worms, totally disgusting death in Acts chapter 12. So the Herods, each one of these men, as you have believers standing before them, they have sought the death of those men. So this kind of helps give you a flavor of the character that Paul is standing before. So in this scene, Agrippa, so Herod Agrippa II and Bernice, they are brother and sister. Now there's there's rumors that there's salacious relationship and those kinds of things. Uh, Bernice, I think she's she's widowed, she's divorced, she's, Linked to her brother politically, she ends up uh, being a mistress of Titus. Titus is the son of Vespasian. Titus is the general who destroys Jerusalem. Vespasian becomes the emperor. Titus becomes the emperor after his dad dies. You got all of this? Bernice no longer can be the mistress of Titus when Titus becomes emperor because the Senate will allow him to be married to a Jew all kinds of tabloid stuff going on behind the scenes, and these are the individuals that Paul is going to stand before and preach the holy, glorious gospel to, because in all of their seediness outside of Jesus, it's a snapshot of every single human soul. So here you have King Agrippa and Bernice coming to Caesarea to greet Festus, this new political relationship, and again, everybody's trying to jockey for as much power as possible. So verse 14, when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem and asking for a judgment against him, literally a punishment. These guys want this guy dead. To them, I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer to defend himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together, Without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accuser stood up and brought no accusation against him of such things as I suppose, so Felix had in his mind that Paul was doing bad stuff, and then when he listens to the testimony of everybody, he's sitting back saying, well, that's not what I thought we were going to talk about today. So, they're accusing him of these things that I didn't suspect, but had some questions. They're they're dealing with, you know, these controversial questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, but Paul says he's alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he's willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, and this is a, Augustus is the first emperor of Rome, he's long since dead, but it's still a title for the emperor, means August venerated. I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come in with great pomp, all this pageantry, and they entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus' command, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa, and all the men who are here present with us, you see the man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But I have found that he committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus. I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner... uh, and not to specify the charges against him. So here, I mean, take, we don't know... We know almost nothing about Festus at all. We have a paragraph from him, about him, from Josephus. Josephus was favorable to him, but Festus was only in this position for a year or two. He died of illness while he was in office, so we really know nothing about him and about his background. From my perspective in this snapshot, it seems like he is totally ignorant to who Jesus Christ is, so he's ignorant to Christianity the way and its impact upon upon the nation of Israel or elsewhere throughout Rome. So, as he is listening to Paul and the Jews talk about their religious stuff, Festus is an outsider and he's saying, I don't have a clue what you people are talking about. But here's King Agrippa. King Agrippa is a Jew. He, and he well, he's a quasi-Jew. Um, so, he ought to be aware of this. So, Festus is trying to press into his expertise because this guy has appealed to Caesar. I need to send him to Caesar and I've got to write a letter to Caesar why I'm sending this guy and if I waste Caesar time then I look like an idiot. So, would everybody help me out with what I need to write to Caesar? That's the position. Got it? All right, now the fun part, chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. I love Paul. I love Jesus in Paul. Paul stretches out his hand and answers for himself. I think myself happy, literally. I think Paul's been waiting for two years, and now he's before this pageantry and all of this pomp. And he says, you know what? I feel blessed right now. Those are the words of his mouth. I think myself blessed King Agrippa. Because today it's not that that he's just going to answer for himself before Agrippa. He's going to share the gospel with this audience. And he thinks himself blessed and fortunate to be able to do so. Here I am. Send me. I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert. You are knowledgeable of all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to bear with me, to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect, so the most exact, that's what the Pharisees are known for, according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee seeking to abide by every single law of God, even though... We are all incapable. Verse 6, Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are 12 tribes. So this is, again, there's no such thing as the lost 10 tribes of Israel. I'm not going to get into that history because we don't have time. The 12 tribes are all there present in Paul's time. To this promise are 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain, hope to arrive at the fulfillment of God's promises. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible to you that God raises the dead? And here's the, what is the promise? What is the promise that you are holding on to faith in Jesus Christ for? For me, it's life. And that life, I know that our almighty God who created me, who created the heavens and the earth, he is the source of life. I know that there is coming a day outside of rapture that I am going to die. I know, as a matter of fact, that each and every one of you is going to die. And I know that death is wrong. There is something not right about death. It is, very, it is a spiritual thing that when you sit in the mourning process, Of death that people go through there's it's not just all psychological and mental there is a spiritual mourning that occurs when an individual dies there is not a single human being who dies whose death is not tragic do you all agree with me in that It is tragic when a baby dies. It is tragic when a child dies. It is tragic when your mother, your father, who has lived a wonderful life, living with the Lord, full days, dies in their sleep, full of days at the end, that death is still tragic, and it is wrong. Death is solely the result and the wage and the consequence of sin. Sin, by definition, is in disobedience to the holy God. All Adam and Eve did was ate a piece of food that God said, don't eat that. Anybody ever disobeyed God in in the most basic of things? The simplest act of doing what God said no to brought death to all humanity. The good news of what Jesus did in becoming like us to die that death, to give us his life. This is the promise that Paul is talking about. We see that promise in Genesis 3 that her seed, again, a prophecy of the Messiah to come in its first form will crush the head of the enemy. We can sit in the promised child, the promised future child to Abraham will be a blessing to all humanity, to all of the nations. You can sit in the promises to David, to Noah, to Moses, to the other prophets. There are so many promises that are wrapped up in who Jesus is as Messiah, as the promised one. Ultimately, the promise revolves around life. The new covenant, I will put into you a heart that is not natural. I will give you, I will take out of you that heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And on that heart of flesh, my word will be written upon it. There is coming a day when nobody needs to tell you to know me because that will be your desire because I will be in you. Every single human being faces death. And Jesus is the only means through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, his ascension, his coming back, him being who he is. He is our life. He is our hope. And Paul is saying, because I believe that, all of the Jews, you, King Agrippa, you know what the word of God says. Is it unimaginable? Is it impossible for you to think that God brings people alive from the dead, raises them up again? No, because that's the testimony of all of the Old Testament. This life is not all there is. And the only way that we have insight to what's beyond the veil is when God reveals it and manifests it. And again, this is why we believe in Jesus Christ. We hope that that the testimony about him, that it is factual, and not just hope, we have a confidence that it is true. And that confidence, all of it revolves around my future recreation and his glory and his image for all eternity, because there's coming that day again. This is my hope. This is the hope that purifies us. I will see my God. And it's not just with these little physical eyes. It's being one with him for all eternity. I can't even imagine. Hasn't even entered into our hearts the glory that awaits us in him. This is why Paul is standing before them because the Jews, through me saying that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised one, they are standing in rejection of that. So from the Jews' perspective, Paul is a blasphemer, not fitting to live worthy of death. But from Paul's perspective, his understanding through Jesus manifesting himself to him, which he's going to get here in a minute, this is why I'm here, for the hope that God will fulfill his promises. And why should you think, anybody, that it's incredible that God would raise the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary or opposed to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I, did all, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That one line is why some people try and say that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't. He was too young. This isn't an official vote, but in those circumstances, Paul is standing with the, as judge with the other judges in the community, casting the vote, the believers in Jesus Christ ought to die. Verse 11, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them, forced them to blaspheme and, ex- listen, and being exceedingly enraged. Literally, Paul was to the His behavior, his, his anger towards them was on the level of insanity, was his own testimony. Exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them. I hunted them, even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven. And again, this is, um, without doubt, Paul is referring to the glory of God being revealed, this light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen on the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you hunting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul's had all these different circumstances in his life that is revealing to him the truth of who Jesus is, and Paul is kicking against that testimony. And it's hurting him. It's causing him pain. Again, Jesus has prepared him for this moment. And what does Jesus do in the moment? I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Paul remembers this moment vibrantly. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you, literally, Paul, I have chosen you a minister, So this is to serve on behalf of Jesus and a witness, both of the things which you have seen. So up until this point in Paul's life, he has witnessed many things. He has this incredible life-changing event as Jesus has given him this vision and this reality, what he has seen. And again, this is the third time that Luke has told us about this in Acts and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. So, from this moment, when we see it, saw it in Acts chapter 9, Paul had an extended time where Jesus revealed himself and the truth of what the promises meant in the Old Testament and Jesus as the fulfillment of those things. Sit in Galatians for Paul's testimony about that. Verse 17, I will deliver you from the people reference to the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you. Why is Jesus sending him to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles? To open their eyes, in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent. Again, this is uh, dealing with turning. It's having a change of mind. Reconsider your life at that moment where you are open to the reality that there is a God and Jesus is his son. Turn to God and do works befitting of repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having attained help from God to this day, I stand. Witnessing both to small and great Saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the people and to the Gentiles. So, St. Paul's, again, Paul is his testament. I feel blessed to be able to defend myself to be able to offer you the reason for, for my life and for the circumstances that I'm in, and all of it is wrapped in who Jesus Christ is. And Paul's gone through this own process himself, but as he has gone out, what is he proclaiming? Again, these, these two things are linked. When he talks about being having our eyes open, right? He was sent to open their eyes to the Gentiles that they should repent. So this word, this idea that that we would have our senses opened whether it's our eyes, our ears, our mind, our heart, that we would be open, that we would reconsider our lives, right? Here Jesus is, we have all gone about our life's activities, and all of us have being pursued by Jesus in different ways, and all of us had this moment where I know for me, I was heading down a path, and the path was wrong, and I was presented with who Jesus Jesus is and was and will be forever and ever, and at that moment, I took a, a lot of time to reconsider, repent, to turn and again, th- this is constant in our lives that we would have this this um, daily relationship with the Lord, where we would be continually turning away from what is not of Him and turning to Him. And often that causes that the... um, We need to reconsider what we're thinking, what we're doing, why we're doing it, where we're going, how we're serving, right? There's a constant assessment in the Lord of, Lord, am I following you according to your will today? But again, this is when the gospel goes out, there is always this call for people to repent. These were Jesus' first words of of his public ministry. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Reconsider your life. Reconsider your goals and your mission and your activities. Why? Because there's a judgment coming of both the just and the unjust. Reconsider. And then the second thing is, on both of these things, there's a turning there's a turning away from darkness and Satan and self. And there is a turning towards what? Light. God is defined as light. He exposes everything. The darkness flees from his light. And it's in the very beginning of creation, let there be light. He is light. He is love. Again, it's, uh, light is this, it's the opposite of... Um, in sin, we try and hide. We don't want anybody to know. We don't even want to know ourselves. We want to hide from the consequences and the realities and all those kinds of things. We don't want anybody to know what we're doing, what we're guilty of. We whitewash the wall on the outside. And the reconsidering is, wait a minute. God sees everything. His light uncovers all darkness. The darkness flees from his light. So when we are turning, it's a constant turning away from all that is not him and turning towards to his light, turning towards God. And then in both of these descriptions, uh, there's one, there's, there's a reception. We are receiving from him the forgiveness of sins. Oh my, thank you that the, the consequences of sin are released from us, cast away from us we receive an inheritance all that is his become all that is ours among all those who are sanctified how do we access this by faith in jesus that receiving of forgiveness that receiving of the inheritance um, that song that we sang earlier about, like, I love you, Lord, so let my life reflect that and image that reality, that's what this word, this, uh, where he says, do works fitting of repentance. Lord, I've repented. I've reconsidered. I've changed. You're changing me. You're transforming me. If I've received all that you are, Then let everything that I'm doing as a consequence of that be fitting of the righteousness that you've given to me. And again, that only happens in Jesus. Now remember, you got some different perspectives here, and we'll we'll go through this quick. Festus, Paul, you're out of your mind. Now, when he made this defense, Festus said with a loud voice, and again, think of Festus' perspective as he's listening to the gospel. He's probably this is probably the very first time that he's ever heard this information and what's his response? Paul, you're crazy. Paul, you are out of your mind. You are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you insane. Paul said, and "Again, listen to and again, this is, this is one heart's response to information, information that we hold on to. I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. These are, these are rational words. The king, before whom I speak freely, boldly, knows these things. I'm convinced that none of these things escape his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. You know, from, Paul knows from King Agrippa's perspective, Agrippa knows all of the information that Paul just communicated because this is very public information in regards to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And tens of thousands of Jews are responding to faith in Jesus Christ in Agrippa's culture. He's not ignorant to any of this information. And Paul gets even more bold. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe agrippa and bernie they're in a different heart they have a different perspective and they're listening to the information what's agrippa's standpoint paul you almost convinced me persuade me to become a christian paul says i would literally i pray to god not you only but all who hear he's talking to the room but all who hear me today might become almost and altogether such as I except for these chains it's a prayer of every Christian I want everybody to know Jesus when he had said these things the king stood up in a conversation as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. They go aside, so Paul's dismissed. They have a private conversation, talking among themselves. This man has done nothing deserving of death or chains. And King Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Paul, uh, Paul locked up his future then by appealing to Caesar, calling upon Caesar. Anyways, all right, worship team, come on up. We don't have any more time to sit in the application of that, which I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to do that. You'll notice that the communion table is empty. I love taking communion, and I love the hearts of participating in communion. I can't tell you how many people came up to me and said, do you know that the communion's not on the table? So we were out of grape juice this morning, but I love it. But here's the reality. When we hold this piece of bread in our hands... And we hold this cup of the fruit of the vine in our hands. What is it? But yeah, it's stuff. Thank you. We We call them elements. They are to be a reminder of the reality. So the reality of Jesus Christ, even though we don't have the elements before us in our hands, the reality of who Jesus is is always constant. Amen? So, my brothers and sisters, before we enter into worship, let's stand together. And let's remember our Lord together, even though we don't have the elements. Amen? So, Heavenly Father, we come before you as your creatures. We confess and recognize that you and you alone are the creators of the heavens and the earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've formed us in our mother's wombs. You have brought us into this world. And throughout our lives, Lord, through different ways, you've revealed yourself to us. You let us know the fact that you sent your son to tabernacle in this flesh, to live in this tent, in this body. You sent him, Lord, to preach truth you sent him to reveal your grace you sent him in your power in your authority and Lord we believe that testimony in the gospels that everyone who heard him was astonished by the words that came out of his mouth by their truth by their authority by their grace with all of those characters Lord We respond, some of us like a leper, some of us like a harlot, some of us like the religious leaders, some of us like a fisherman. There's something about your son that has drawn us, that compels us to love him, to listen to him, to receive him. Sitting with the disciples that night before, he is going to willingly offer himself as a sacrifice for the sin of all humanity. We sit in this Passover meal and recognize, here's, here's this bread that is a symbol of his body that is broken and that is offered for the remission of all sins of all time. We hear that, Lord, that we need to to take and to receive to ourselves that promise through faith in Jesus. We have the remission, the forgiveness, the release from sin and from the consequences of sin, which is death. Thank you, Jesus, for dying my death, our death. And with the disciples, Lord, we see that cup that you poured and that you passed around. The symbol of the new covenant in your blood, in your sacrifice. The promise of the new heart. The promise of the new mind. The promise of your Holy Spirit abiding in us. The promise of life and life eternal. We receive that cup, Lord. And we consume it as a symbol that we are in covenant with you according to your promises. We believe that you will fulfill and complete and bring about every single promise that you have ever uttered. Until that day comes, Lord, we ask that you keep us pure. We ask that you transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Here are we, Lord. Whatever you desire to do, let your will be done. Here we are. Send us in your love, in your truth, in your grace, for your glory and your glory Lord. Amen. We worship you.